Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Dillo Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. If you are enjoying these talks and you would like to dive deeper into the topics discussed by Zenki Roshi in this podcast, consider becoming a premium subscriber. This will give you access to recorded Q&A sessions related to each talk, as well as previously unreleased talks from our intensives. Becoming a premium subscriber helps to support the continuation of the podcast and Zanki Roshi's teachings. Learn more about it by clicking the link in the show notes. As always, you're welcome to join us live for these Dharma Talks. You can join us online via Zoom or in person. You can find a link to our website with the Dharma Talk schedule and more information also in the show notes. Now here's Zanki Roshi. Good morning. So here we are. But what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing? Everything uh, is an experiment. Uh, Life is an experiment. You know, things that don't work uh, either go away, right? They die. They don't work. Or um, they stick around and cause suffering. (laughs) So, you know, one way you could look at how to engage with your existence, your moment-to-moment existence, is to look at what works, what's functional, and what's dysfunctional. Even the things that appear functional could be dysfunctional if you look more closely. Practice period, three-month practice periods uh, go way back. They go back to... Uh, the historic Buddha, and it's um, the rainy season, the three-month rainy season, where you can't walk around with your itinerant sangha, so you've got to settle down. And then what do you do with this time? You um, invigorate your practice and study and communal living. And then from this having a kind of practical reason, right, it it becomes a tradition that moved into China and Japan, where in Japan it received the name Ango, which Ango means peaceful dwelling. We're not doing Ango. The... the, Primary um, commitment during Ango is not to leave. You stay on the premises of the monastery. Either you live there, or when you come, you can't leave. If you leave, you're gone. Only designated people can leave. They can go shopping and such things, you know. So, um, 
We can't do that. We can't stay within the confines of peaceful dwelling. We have um, jobs and families and romantic partners. Um, there's conflicts in the social fabric of our existence. Uh, where, where's the peace? So our um, intention, the experiment of the practice period is to see if in the midst of those um, dynamics, it is possible to practice. You may think it's impossible. If you think it's impossible, you don't try. And if you don't try, there's no transformation. Maybe, you know, you get lucky. You some Something happens. But practice is like, and it's true, you know, things happen spontaneously. Maybe just because you're so fed up with a certain dysfunction, it's like, whew, something opens up. Like, I don't have to do this. And then the transformation occurs. But practice is like, you can't practice and expect that it will deliver a transformation. It's more like you are increasing the chances. Like someone said, you know, enlightenment is an accident, but practice makes you accident prone. This is good advice. <clears throat> enlightenment. You know, this, um, let's talk about the way I, I like to think about it is like, this is. It's about transformation and how does transformation occur? It occurs through the, through the um, embodiment of liberation, liberation from suffering, wisdom and compassion. So if we think, if we believe that it's possible, if we want to give ourselves that chance, you know, we are on the bodhisattva path. I'm looking for a word, you know, what do you, what do you call a person who is sincerely interested in experimenting with their lives in such a way that it, uh, you know, transforms in the direction of liberation, wisdom, and compassion? This isn't Buddhist. This is kind of a universal thing. If you listen closely, it's just, it's that person who, who wants to live in accord with their as Suzuki Roshi said, in most request. <clears throat> what do you call such a person? Do you have a name? I'd like to hear. You know, in Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, this person is called a bodhisattva. A wisdom being. So, can we imagine ourselves as everyday bodhisattvas? You know, this is the, this is, this is the question underlying this experiment of bringing the idea of a 
practice period into everyday circumstances. So this is like you want to find that question and, you know, in yourself is you, do you imagine yourself as that kind of being? And what does that mean for how you conduct your life? What are the things you would want to stop doing? What are the things you would want to start doing? What are the thing, what are the experiments that you would like to engage in to see if this bodhisattva intention can begin to flourish in your life? There's this um, I have heard that in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism, like the, the the later developments of Buddhism, the layperson is more revered than the the monastic. Why? Because for the monastics, it's easy to practice. For the uh, lay practitioners, it's more difficult to practice. So if a lay person realizes the way, they're more admirable than the monastics. <laughs> okay, so we can be <laughs> happy about that. Stop here, go home. <laughs> There's a value judgment in the distinction lay versus monastic that you, it is very difficult to get away from. It's like, as lay people, we think... Oh, the monastics are doing the real thing. You may not think that. I'm just generalizing. Uh, the monastics are doing the real thing when it comes to practice. And I'm just kind of like trying it too. <coughs> and then there is, you know, this elevation of the realized layperson. Like in the Zen tradition, this is layman Pong. You, some of you may have heard of him, but he's like this realized lay person, you know, his whole family practices, his wife is practicing and is a realized person, his daughter is, you know, doling out wisdom to passerbys, it's amazing, layman pong. <clears throat> but when you read about layman pong as a layman, you're like, well, he's this exceptional figure. There's also just one layman who, like, walks through the koan literature, it's just one. So you're like, well... I probably I'm not going to be that one pong person. <laughs> so even though the layperson is elevated in this way, it's very difficult to get away from the distinction. Do you remember the tetralemma? Um, the tetralemma is like this, that, no, you know, distinction, lay, monastic, both, neither. Right? Four positions. 
So either I'm, you know, a monastic or I'm a layperson. Either I can do real ongo or I can just do this second rate, you know, everyday Zen stuff. And then there's the both position, which is already a certain kind of wisdom creeps into the whole, into your, uh, into your conceptual mind. And it's like, well, maybe I could be both. Maybe I could be both monastic and the lay person, which is when people go on retreat. You go on retreat for for one month or three months, and then you are monastic for that time, and then you return to your lay life, and you hope that you can, you know, be both and integrate it and be serious about your practice in that way. Yeah. And then there is the neither position, neither nor position, neither monastic nor lay. Let me read you something from Suzuki Roshi. Bodhisattva ancestor. Old Briar Rose card. Here in America, we cannot define Zen Buddhism the same way we do in Japan. American students are not priests and monastics, and yet not completely laymen. I understand it this way, that you are not priests is an easy matter. Well, we understand easily that we're not priests with some exceptions. Um, I'm not a priest, actually. I don't see myself that way. That you are not priests is an easy matter, but that you are not exactly laymen is more difficult to understand. I think you are special people and want some special practice that is not exactly priest's practice and not exactly layman's practice. You are on your way to discovering some appropriate way of life. I think that is our Zen community, our group. But, but, there must be a but, but we must also know what our undivided original way is and what Dogen's practice is. Dogen, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan. Dogen Zenji said that some may attain enlightenment and some may not. This is a point I am very much interested in. Although we all have the same fundamental practice, which we carry out in the same way, (coughs) some may attain enlightenment and some may not. It means that even if we have no experience of enlightenment, if we sit in the proper way with the right attitude and understanding of practice, then that is Zen. The main point is to practice seriously, and the important attitude 
is to understand and have confidence in big mind. So we're some special people who want a special practice which is directed at finding an appropriate way of life. When, when you really try to understand what the tetralemma is doing as a practice, any opposition of terms, any opposition of concepts, you know, you hear a Zen master say, it neither exists nor doesn't exist. That's right. Oh, God. Neither exists nor doesn't exist. So what does it do? It's not that you can, when you question existence, you don't arrive at non-existence. When you question non-existence, you don't arrive at existence. It's like... um, the uh, fourth position of neither nor opens up what can be called an implicit context from which the distinction arises in the first place. Are you following? What is the implicit context from which the distinction of existence and non-existence, but that's not what we're talking about right now. We can talk about that when we look in the Genjo Koan. What is the implicit context that is implicit in the distinction of lay and monastic. What does it arise from? What is before you start to divide people into monastics and lay people? It's what Suzuki Roshi in this text calls serious practice. You see? If someone is interested in serious practice, they might go to the monastery to do it. But my going to the monastery to do serious practice arises not in the monastery, it arises from my everyday circumstances. So the intention, the inmost request to be a serious practitioner, to be a committed practitioner, to really look, to really search for an appropriate way of life does not require special circumstances like a monastery at all. It's just something that arises in you or is present in you or not, and you are searching for how to give it expression. You see what I'm saying? So it's our job to give expression to our inmost request. It's our job to give expression to our bodhisattva attitude. How are we going to do that? This is why I encouraged you to write down your intentions and your commitments. To search for that. By the way, it's on a piece of paper, in an envelope, anonymously. Will not nobody looks. It will stay on the altar as a, an expression of our sincerity. But what you wrote down can change. This is important, and I want to spend a little time with that, because I imagine when you make a list 
of intentions and commitments, you might make a long list. You might have a short list, I don't know, or a short statement or something, but some of you probably made a pretty long list of shoulds. It's like all the things you've ever wanted to change about your life. I, you know, let's, you know, do those in these next 90 days. All these things that haven't come to fruition yet, or you have a hard time with, like in this now established framework of three months, you know, I should do those. It's not going to work. Shoulds don't work. If shoulds did work, your life would be perfect already. <laughs> you need uh, you need certain ingredients for a transformation. The first ingredient is observation. I'll call it observation. You can call it mindfulness. L looking deeply or closely. Noticing what's going on. Noticing yourself. Noticing what is happening when you do things a certain way. This is the absolute uh, necessary requirement. So if we speak in Buddhist terms, you need to fold mindfulness, observation into your life. But if you weren't interested in studying your life process closely, you, you wouldn't be here. So you have that interest already. The second is disenchantment with dysfunction. Disenchantment with the old ways. Your disenchantment has to be big enough. You know, when, when you deal with drug addicts, there's this like hitting rock bottom. This is like the, this is deep disenchantment with, I can't go on like this. Right? If we're more sensitive, if we train ourselves in observation, in mindful observation and noticing, we might get disenchanted more quickly, which is uh, some people are like, ah, I don't want to practice mindfulness. <laughs> Life becomes <laughs> unpleasant, you know. But from the point of view of transformation, this is, this is great. You, you become disenchanted earlier. You don't have to hit rock bottom. And then you need to have some experience with true nourishment. You know, that which is truly nourishing. Not that which is seemingly nourishing, but that which is truly nourishing. Because there's always, whatever your dysfunctional habits are, there's always short-term um, gain or 
you know, reward that comes from your habits. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't have it, have them. But are they truly nourishing? So we need to learn to make this distinction. Yeah, I like to do that. And it is actually pretty dysfunctional. So there's a longing for transformation. So you have some, like something's going on in your life and you're observing it and then you feel the disenchantment. But you know, we, we, we talk to ourselves as if we already know what's better. We already know the new ways that are the alternative that will replace the dysfunction. But the truth is, you don't know the new way. This is the problem, that we don't know the new way. And when something is unclear, uncertain, not quite, you know, in reach, you know, you get anxious. You get, you feel lost or confused. And that, that state of not knowing what else to do is uncomfortable enough to snap back to the old ways that are actually not so great. So practice requires us to hang out in this space of not knowing. Right? You've heard that before, Zen phrase, hang out in the space of not know. But it's a very concrete not know. I don't know. You let you you actually need to be willing to let the new ways, your body sattva transformation, you have to let it emerge from the ingredients of your life, not knowing what it might be. You can't think, in other words, you can't think your way to it. You let it, you have to let it emerge from all the implicit ingredients of your life. Some other way, some more functional way that works better. Better. It's more nourishing. Of course, this includes others, the whole situation, right? We don't exist in a vacuum. If something just works for me, soon enough, you've got some people who complain about you. (laughs) Then it's not working so well. It seemed like it was working for me, but if it's not also working for others, there's, there's no way. Now, coming back to your list of, you know, I'm exaggerating, but your list of shoulds. Don't treat your practice commitments as structures, as fixed patterns. What you're committing to is not a pattern. What you're committing to is a process. 
If you say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z in this order and, you know, like this every day, that could be a monastic framework or something, and now you're bringing it into your everyday life. Uh, soon enough, you'll be like, oh, God, I can't, you know, I thought I wanted to do this, <laughs> but I don't really want to do it. So you're going to, you know, not do this, not do that. And soon enough, you know, it is not much left of your list. <laughs> it's the New Year's resolution syndrome, right? <clears throat> but if you're committing to a process of observation and noticing of disenchantment and openness toward emergence, then your practice is very dynamic. It's like, yes, you come in, you put an envelope down in, into the, onto the altar, and you say, I'm going to do something different. But then the important thing is, as you do something different, there is a result from that which you're doing differently. And you need to observe that result. You need to see if that result is actually working for you. And if that result is working for you, you know, you might do more of it. And if it's not working for you, you might change it and do it slightly differently, you know. And that could be very <clears throat> subtle things, like instead of starting practice at such and such a time, I'll start it 15 minutes later. Or actually, it feels like it would be good to practice more, but there's a limit to how much more practice is actually productive in your life. So you want to acknowledge that and then do less, a little bit less than you thought, and see how it works. But don't bullshit yourself. Don't use it that, you know, advice I just gave you. Don't commit to a pattern. Commit to a process. Don't use it as a cop-out. It's like, hey, it's the process, whatever. This, what I'm saying, only works when your practice is serious as... Suzuki says, I, I would say, sincere or committed to uh, to the process of observing and adjusting and finding appropriateness for you. Yeah. Suzuki Roshi says this marvelous thing. I quoted it just recently in a talk where he says, um, we each must find our own true way. And when we do it, it's the universal way. That is the mystery. This is the problem with monasticism, that it's like, it's supposed to be the same for everyone. I think it's a mistake, actually. It's a good way to get you going. It's a good way to establish some discipline. It's a good way to give up your self-centered ideas of like, no, I can't do it, or I don't want to do it, or this is too hard. Once you're in there, you know, you just have to get with the program. This is helpful, really helpful. But the more you grow in your practice, the more the structure becomes sort of like, ah, oh, this is just external, but we have to find our internal, our own inner true way, as Suzuki Reishi says. <clears throat> really, I really mean that. There's not a universal way that is explicit that works for everyone. 
No, it's when you become you, Zen becomes Zen. When you find your own true way, then something flourishes in you. And when something truly flourishes in you, other people will notice it. That's the universality of it. They're like, oh, this person's figured it out. Or a little bit more than I have. And then that becomes an inspiration, and that be, that's pointing the way. But nobody can say, tell you exactly how to do it. You see, in that sense, what we're doing now, an everyday practice period, is actually truer, more appropriate, but it requires more inner discipline because it's not coming from the outside. It's not like already there and then because the danger of monasticism is like you just get with the program and then you're like oh well i'm i'm golden you know this is working no you still have to make it your own it's not just working it's a fantasy that it will just work and it can be an escape too escape the real tensions and conflicts and incompatibilities of life and say like, oh, I'm going to do this in this small, rigid framework of a monastery. So it's not necessarily an escape, but it sure can. Be. It's a big invitation to bypass certain problems that just belong to being a human being. Another thing with your long list, possibly long list, is you can't do everything all at once. It is okay to have one focus because one focus has many extensions. I have a friend who has this habit of adopting like mottos in his life. It's like he goes to a hotel and the hotel has a slogan, you know, for its staff. And the staff slogan that's like posted on the wall of the hotel is every moment counts. And he's like looking at the slogan of the hotel. Well, this is true. Oh, let me live that for the next year. And then he walks around with this intention of every moment counts. And what follows from that? Lots of things. It interacts with every one of your habits. It interacts with everyone, every one of your relationships. It interacts with the notions of time and space. If you take it seriously, your understanding of time and space will be different after you do this. You see? Suffering will be eliminated. <laughs> when you don't make distinctions with, between moments that count and moments that don't count, and your customers will be more happy. <laughs> this is why this 
This is why the hotel adopted that slogan. And then, you know, he drops the motto and some other motto appears, like, relationships are primary. Oh. This means, like, you're really into doing something and a friend calls and you're like, eh, I don't pick up the phone. Got better things to do. Oh, relationships are primary. Oh, you've got to take the call. You go shopping and you want the stuff that's in the store, right? And then you're interacting with a cashier and you just want to get out. But if relationships are primary, then it's not about the stuff you're buying. It's about the person you're meeting at the checkout. Okay. So, but my, I'm just illustrating something. You know, the, the Zen tradition is full of turning words like not knowing is most intimate or space connects or, you know, Lay people are better than... No. <laughs> so if you do one... The, the, this is a known Zen instruction. If you do one practice thoroughly, you do all practices. So you want to use a certain practice that you really know you can and want to do, not should do, but want to do, um, that, in, that takes hold of you almost, you know, you want to use it as a door. Now, this friend of mine talked to me about it and said, you know, what's kind of disappointing is like I do this for a year or two and then it just disappears. The phrase disappears. The, the fire has burned up. I'm not interested in practicing relationships are primary anymore. I move on. He, he said this to me. I said, no, you're wrong. It doesn't disappear. It seems to be disappearing because you are not explicitly engaged with it. But if you have done a practice thoroughly, what happens is that you actually transform your life and the results of your practice become implicit. The results of your practice are embodied. You're living them all the time, and you're not thinking about it, which is a good thing. You don't have to think about relationships are primary anymore because you've made them primary. Plus, and this is, gets more complicated, relationships are not primary. You are using relationships are primary as an antidote to an attitude where relationships are not primary. But once you've practiced it, a certain kind of balance has occurred. Relationships are really important. But taking care of yourself is important too. And taking care of yourself and taking care of others and relationships become one dynamic, <coughs> spontaneous negotiation that you don't have to think about. That's then you have realized the phrase. And the phrase should disappear 
because it's wrong. As an antidote, it's right, but as a statement, it's wrong. To be aware of your breath all the time is wrong. <laughs> but as an antidote to being a dissociated person who lives in their thoughts all the time, it is really correct. But once you are an embodied person, your attention can rest with your breath, or it can rest with your feet, or it can rest with your stomach, or it can be engaged with thinking. That's fine. So a practice is always an antidote. And once you've used up the antidote and have counteracted the poison, you're free. So it disappears. It disappears into the implicit, into the embodied, into that which is not conscious, which is actually what we want. So begin with what's on your list. Focus on something that you can use as a door and watch the extensions. So when I say one thing, and yeah, because you have different contexts, you might do one thing in one context and then another thing in another context. So you might do two or three or four things because you have three or four different contexts. But in those contexts, you do one thing and you use it up. Use up the practice until it is, you know, not necessary anymore. You know, my observation is when a practice is not so necessary anymore, it sort of just fades away. It's less gripping. It doesn't, you know, occupy you so much. And then you may be saying, like my friend, oh, that's kind of sad. Or you may just say, huh, maybe it's working. Maybe it's used up. And if you forget and you go back to your old ways, it may reappear. It may reactivate it. Let it be a process, not a rigid list of, you know, practice things. Okay. The gist of it, you know, is... This, the real source from where all this comes is your sincere search for finding, your sincere search for an appropriate way to live. It's not Buddhist. It's not some other religious thing. It is your sincere intention to find an appropriate way to live. And if you happen to like the expression that Zen has given this, fine, then you're a Zen practitioner. You've got to give it some form, you know? If you don't give it any form, it's not really real. Sorry, you think you're doing it, but no, you need the ingredients. You need the, you need the practices, you need the teachings, you need the other people to do it with. But it's not an identity. Don't turn your practice into an identity, into like, I'm doing this, and then I can feel this way or that way. <laughs> You're committing to a process, the process of living.
process of being a bodhisattva in the unique circumstances of your particular life, which is just the way it is. And then from there, you can find your way, which Suzuki Urashi says, mysteriously, is the universal way, because each one of us has to do this. There's no way around it. Thank you very much.